John, wake up. What is that? Next door, I, I heard a scream. What's that here? Go check it out. John? Is everything all right? Oh my God, you're covered in blood. Go back inside. It's not mine. It's not mine. Go back inside. Call an ambulance right now. Go! I like your dog. Not a secret can you keep it's worth this one you say that a locket in your pocket taking this one to the grave in the show that I know Okay, I'm like pretty sure the moment I tell you what we're talking about today, half of you are gonna go, nope, don't wanna do it. So if you have a fear of dolls, maybe tune out from this episode. I won't fault you, I understand. A lot of my friends have a very real terrifying fear of dolls. But before I tell you just what we're gonna dive into, hi, my name is Harmony and this is What the Actual F. Every week I come here and tell you some of the darkest tales that happen around our world. These stories range from crime to disappearances to downright spooky stories. And every once in a while I'll throw in a conspiracy because, well, I love them. And let's be real, our government is pretty shady. So throw on the tinfoil hat and join me from time to time. Or you can stick around today and hear about the terrifying case I have for you. You see, sometimes I like to take reality and mix it with the scary stuff. There's one thing I've learned in my research, I know I say that every week, but this, this is true. If it's based on a true story, we want to know about it. And if you throw in the paranormal, we really want to know about it. Because everybody wants to know what's there after. After all of this, what's next? Or, to some of you, there's just nothing. But, the truth remains, we don't actually know. So when we see a true story entangled with the paranormal, we, as a public, as a consumer, we dive in. And that's exactly what many of us did in the series of The Conjuring. Oh yeah, yeah, I warned you, fear of dolls. Well, here we are. Today, we are gonna talk about the very true story of the original Annabelle doll. The story that begins when she began terrorizing her first owner in the 1970s. This documented haunting would force Ed and Lorraine Warren into the picture. They decided they would take Annabelle for safekeeping to their occult museum. This is where Annabelle resides today. She sits in a glass case bearing a hand-carved inscription of the Lord's Prayer. While an extremely pleasant smile may sit upon her happy face, do not let this fool you. Beneath her lies a sign that says warning, positively do not open. To the uninformed, yeah, she just looks like your typical, ordinary, everyday raggedy and doll. But many of us know, Annabelle is anything but ordinary. This allegedly evil doll has been blamed for demonic possession, a slew of violent attacks, and even a few near-death experiences. She's also had her own embellishments happen, I mean, she's in Hollywood. The stories of Annabelle created a massive universe for horror fanatics. It seems like every year there's another conjuring. But how much of Annabelle's story is real? Is this doll truly a demonic spirit, or is it just a child's toy? 
just some simple raggedy and doll used to profit wildly. Well, let's talk about that. This is the real story of Annabelle the doll. Also, before we begin, just gonna say sorry in advance for the nightmares that you're about to receive. Love you. So know that you have a museum on your property. Yes. Now, Ed, would you want to just tell a little bit about some of the things, perhaps, that are in that museum that are really fascinating, scary things, perhaps, that you've collected over the years? All right. I think one of the most famous would be Annabelle. The real Annabelle the doll doesn't look anything like her cinematic counterpart. She doesn't have porcelain skin, and her features are nowhere near lifelike. The doll that lives in the occult museum of famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren, the now infamous duo that worked the case, is made all the more creepy by just how ordinary she appears. Annabelle's stitched features, including her half-smile and bright orange triangular nose, will evoke memories for many of us. Memories of simpler times and childhood toys. Just all the nostalgia you can imagine. But if you ask Ed and Lorraine Warren, even though they did pass away, Ed who passed away in 2006 and Lorraine in 2019, they would tell you a very stark warning. Annabelle is dangerous. According to the well-known demonologist couple, the doll is responsible for two near-death experiences and one fatal accident. But that's not it either. There's also a string of demonic activity that lasted some 30 years, all attached to this simple Raggedy Ann doll. The first of these infamous stories can be traced all the way back to 1970, when Annabelle was a brand new doll. A story came to the Warrens by two young women and was retold for years after by the Warrens themselves. Here's how the story goes. The Annabelle doll had been given as a gift to a young nurse named Donna, or Deirdre, depending on the source. I even once read Diane. Anyways, the source of the gift was from the girl's mother, and the gift was for her 28th birthday. Donna, Deirdre, Diane, apparently was thrilled with her gift. I mean, she loved it. High five, mom, you did great. I don't even get gifts from my mom, so like, <laughs> score, she did. Anyways, so she brought the gift back to her apartment and shared it with another young nurse who was her roommate named Angie. Yeah, apparently she loved it so much she was like, hey, Rumi, I got a gift I think you're gonna like too. Look at that. Isn't it cool? I have never in all of my existence had a friend just need to show me one of their dolls, but you know, to each his own. At first, the doll was this adorable accessory according to the girls. They actually both really liked her just being around the house. She would sit on the sofa in the living room and greet visitors with her colorful looks. You know, just this adorable little Raggedy Ann doll to welcome you. Again, this is the 1970s, completely typical. But before long, the two women began to notice that Annabelle seemed to possibly be moving. 
Yeah, they would put her in one spot only to find her in another. However, when they would talk to each other, the roommates would realize neither of them were moving her. So how was she getting around from room to room? Donna would place her on the living room sofa before leaving for work only to come home in the afternoon and find her in the bedroom. But the door would also be shut. But then it got creepier. Donna and Angie claimed that they started finding notes all throughout the apartment that read, help me. Okay, that's about the time you move out. But they didn't, and uh, according to the women, also, the notes were written on parchment paper. This is important because they didn't keep this in the house. So where was it coming from? But like, more importantly, who the hell was leaving them? Another thing about this story is Angie's boyfriend. His name is Lou. And one afternoon, while he was in the apartment and Donna was out, he heard some noises coming from her room. At first, he thought that someone actually broke into the apartment. But when he busted in the room and started looking around, he actually found no signs of anybody. However, he did find Annabelle. And she was lying face down on the ground. Now, there are some versions that say that he was attacked the moment he entered the room, and some even weirder ones that the doll attacked him while he was sleeping. But according to Ed and Lorraine, the actual case is when he walked into the room, he saw Annabelle laying face down. My little I love your blue button eyes. They're just like stars in the skies. Raggedy Ann, I love you. My little Raggedy Ann, you mean the whole world to me. Always together we'll be. Suddenly, as soon as Lou sees the doll, he feels this intense, searing pain on his chest. And according to the story, he looks down to find bloody claw marks running across, well, his chest. So these horrible gashes remain there for two days. And then suddenly, as quickly as they appeared, they vanished. Well, you can imagine following Lou's traumatic experience, the women invited a medium over to help solve their seemingly paranormal problem. This is the 1970s. Calling a psychic or a medium was kind of, I want to say talked about and normal, but also kind of hush-hush. You didn't really share with people that you thought you had a haunting happening or something spooky, but you did get help. And this is where they went, to mediums. This medium decided their best course of action was to hold a seance. And this is when they told the women that the doll was inhabited by a spirit of a deceased seven-year-old, and her name was Annabelle Higgins. She went on to say that this young girl's body had been found years earlier, and the body was discovered right there on the very site of the apartment building. The medium also claimed that the spirit was benevolent, which, if you don't know what that means, it was harmless. It simply wanted to be loved and cared for. Oh, same. 
And the two young nurses, of course, felt bad for the spirit and said, you know what? We will allow her to take up permanent residence right here in our home, but not just in our home, in our doll. <laughs> what? No, mm -mm. listen, I don't care. Uh, no, that's a 10 no, not a 10 for over out, sure. A 10 the fuck no. Why would you do that? Anyways, they did. You know, so uh, red flag number one. Some of you probably think the red flag number one was getting the doll, but oh well, they're here. I just feel like this is common sense 101. Don't tell a spirit to inhabit a doll. I don't know, I can think of many things for you to welcome it into, but not a doll, that's just creepy. But the famous duo, Donna, or Deirdre, Diane? Anyways, her and her roommate Angie do this. And that is where the tale of Annabelle begins. Janice says she's seen your daughter. My daughter has been dead for a very long time. She was taken from us at an early age. We prayed to see our beloved girl again. The contact started small. But then it wanted permission to move into a doll so that it could be with us forever. We said yes. Okay, so as we all could have seen coming, spoiler alert, it doesn't go very well if you invite a spirit to inhabit an object, or like I said, a fucking doll. It didn't go well. <gasps> Darn it, you don't say. So eventually the ladies, in an attempt to rid their home of whatever had now inhabited and they welcomed to stay, they called on an Episcopal priest. This man was Father Hagen. Father Hagen then contacted one of his superiors. I mean, it's not like the guy had Google. He had to reach out to somebody and be like, hey, um, these girls say that this doll has like some sort of entity in it. You want to like send somebody over and just check it out? So his superior, who was Father Cook, then alerts Ed and Lorraine Warren. And this is where the two come into the picture. As far as Ed and Lorraine are concerned, the young lady's trouble really started when they began to believe that the doll deserved some sort of sympathy. The Warrens believed that they were actually dealing with a demonic force that was searching for a human host. So when they felt bad by hearing, you know, this spirit of a young girl just wanted to be loved and cared for, therefore they were like, oh, you poor thing. Well, hey, we have this doll. Uh, you're welcome to like live in it. Yeah, according to Ed Lorraine, that was a big no-no. I, I don't know who else said that. Couldn't have been me. I mean, I know I wasn't alive in the 70s, but still, use your fucking head. Also, fun little fact that the Warrens believed, just a little uh, fun little tidbit about Annabelle, or at least that's what they were calling it, Annabelle. It wasn't some benevolent or nice soul that was just lost and sad and alone. No, they believed it was a demonic entity. Also, I want to read a little passage to you that was actually in the notes for this case. Like, this was written by the Warrens when they were dealing with Annabelle and the beginning of it. Quote, 
Spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. An inhuman spirit can attach itself to a place or object, and this is what occurred in the Annabelle case. The spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. But it didn't turn out to be a game. It turned out to be one of the most horrifying experiences they'd ever have in their life. Mm -hmm. And I've talked with people just recently, as recent as two months ago, who know the two nurses. And even today, they don't like to talk about it. They'll never come to our lectures. <laughs> they don't want to talk about Raggedy Ann, Annabelle at all. So now the, the woman holds a seance and she said, there's a spirit of a six-year-old girl in that doll who was killed in an automobile accident just outside of your apartment house here. Hmm. Well, there was a six-year-old child by the name of Annabelle who was killed. But God does not allow the spirit of a child to go into a doll. This was a demon who was posing as that little child to create sympathy to these two young women, which it did. So the Warrens immediately were like, yeah, okay, there are signs that there may be a demon involved here. I'm just gonna like take a shot in the dark and say, I think that's what it is. This doesn't seem like a nice little sweet girl. Of course, I don't know, some moms out there that have daughters might go, uh, <laughs> you've obviously never raised a little girl. They're demons! I'm kidding. <clears throat> I have a boy. He is a demon. So, like, I get it. But no, all jokes aside, the Warrens did believe they were dealing with a demonic possession of demonic entities. Something very inhuman and evil was there. They were seeing things like demonic possession, including teleportation. According to notes and documentation of the case, the doll was moving on its own. There was even materialization. Again, like I said, that parchment paper that had the notes. The ladies didn't have parchment paper in their apartment, but somehow these notes were being created on it. So it was materializing out of nowhere. David Blaine and Chris Angel ain't got nothing on Annabelle. Sorry. Sorry, let me continue. Oh, they also noted that, quote, the mark of the beast is what happened to Lou's chest. Yeah, so apparently, according to Ed and Lorraine, and many, many paranormal researchers and investigators actually do follow suit with this. So, like, I'm not pointing it out in any kind of shitty way. But there's a saying that apparently if you get three, like, marks, like a claw mark, it's kind of like a mocking to the Holy Trinity, so it's considered the mark of the beast. The Warrens also subsequently ordered an exorcism of the apartment to be performed by Father Cook. You know, the one that called them and was like, yo, <laughs> what's going on here? Can you go check it out? Well, now he's back, and now he has to exorcise the demon. <laughs> Sorry, my inner Jim Carrey just came out. Oh, yeah! Can you feel that? Buddy, huh, huh, huh. I have exercised the demons. This house is clear. Lou, a fiance of one of the girls who received this doll from her mother, Lou had a terrible nightmare. He was laying on the couch. Annabelle was on the other end of the couch in this apartment. And he woke up with a start, and he started to sweat. And he said, geez, I just had the worst nightmare. 
And Donna, who owned the doll, looked at Lou and said, what happened? He said, I had the worst nightmare in the world. I had a dream that this doll was crawling up my leg, finally started strangling me to death. He was very eerie. What he did, though, is he took the doll and he grabbed it with both hands off the couch and he threw it across the room. And as he did, he said, this is just a Raggedy Ann doll. It couldn't hurt anybody. As he did that, seven psychic wounds appeared on his chest, four on his chest, three on his stomach. The kind of wounds where it looked like a scratch mark where blood would come through his t-shirt. And that's when they knew that they weren't dealing with anything that was human. I'm going to cut into these mid-break audios for one second. As I'm here doing my research about Annabelle, I stumble across the story you just heard. Hmm. It sounded familiar to me, but a little bit different as well. And this is why it's hard to believe things that we hear around the world. Because everything is just a game of telephone. Here is that very same story told by Ed himself. This is from a broadcast of a reporter going to the Occult Museum, and this is what happened. This is the origin of the tale that is now told there. Get rid of the doll, burn it, throw it away. He wanted to get rid of that doll. Mm -hmm. He fell asleep on Saturday afternoon. It was this, and the doll was put right across from him on a couch. And the girls were fooling around saying, well now, Annabelle, you help us to clean up. Just like it was a little kid. Yeah. All of a sudden, he woke up with a start. He was sweating. He said, my God, he said, what a nightmare I just had. I dreamt that Annabelle there was strangling me, and he had marks on his throat. Was it psychosomatic? Well, he walks over to the doll. He picks it up, and looks at it, and throws it right across the room. You're nothing but a rag doll. You couldn't hurt anyone. With that, seven slashes appeared on his body, four in the chest and three on the stomach. The blood came right through his shirt. Now they were all frightened. Things were flying around the room. They called the High Episcopal Canon in Hartford. He called Father Richard Nolan. Father Nolan called us. We went to the house. Exorcism was performed immediately in the home and over the people. Mm -hmm. Following Annabelle's removal from Donna, or Deirdre, Deirdre, Diane, Diana, her and Angie's apartment, the Warrens documented several other paranormal experiences that all centered around the doll. First, just minutes after they took possession of her, after the exorcism of the nurse's apartment, the Warrens buckled up and headed out with the doll. They put Annabelle in the back seat of the car and vowed not to take the highway just in case she had some sort of trick up her sleeve that could possibly involve an accident. They didn't want her to have the upper hand, so they were like, nah, we're gonna take the back roads, this bitch is gonna be buckled in the back, and we're good. However, <laughs> Annabelle still had a few tricks up her sleeve. Because these safe back roads still proved to be extra risky for the couple. On their way home, Lorraine claimed that the brakes either stalled or began to fail several times which resulted in them getting into almost near-disastrous crashes several times. Lorraine even claimed that as soon as Ed pulled holy water from his bag and doused the doll with it, the problem with the brakes and almost crashing immediately stopped. Don't your parents keep any creepy stuff around? We keep it all locked away in a room so that we're safe. It's not really good for anyone to go in there. 
What'd you do to get in there? Upon the couple arriving home, Ed and Lorraine place the doll in Ed's study. There, they begin reporting that the doll would levitate and move all over the house. Even when they placed it in a locked office in order to stop it from walking around the house or being discovered in other places, they still claimed that they would find her in other areas of the house. This is when the Warrens decided to go ahead and lock Annabelle up for good. Why did you tell her I let her out? Who? Annabelle. I'm sorry. What else did you touch? Everything. Can I play with Annabelle? I think you have the wrong house. There's no Annabelle here. Yes, she is. I sometimes see things. Like how my mom sees things. The doll, it's a beacon for other spirits. Because Annabelle seemed to be a special, creepy case, the Warrens decided to have a specially made glass and wood case just for Annabelle, upon which they had inscribed the Lord's Prayer and St. Michael's Prayer as well. You know, you gotta be safe, gotta double up the power. For the rest of his life, Ed would periodically say a binding prayer over the case. He did this to ensure that the sinister spirit that he believed inhabited the doll would remain good and trapped right there in the case. Now, since being locked up, Annabelle the doll hasn't moved again, although it is alleged that her spirit has found ways to reach out to us. Yeah, so she might not be walking or, or talking, but she's causing some, some little bit of some booze and some ass. She's being fucking creepy, like that's just the bottom line. And I'm gonna tell you how. One time, according to claims, a priest came to the museum and decided to pick up the doll. You know, do a little, oh, you're nothing but a doll. You have no demonic abilities. Just flat out mocking it. Ed, of course, was like, I don't think you should be doing that. Ed specifically warned the priest, do not mock Annabelle's demonic power. But the priest was like, <laughs> it's just a doll. On his way home, the priest was involved in a near fatal crash that totaled his brand new car. He claimed that he actually saw Annabelle in his rear view mirror just before the accident occurred. Again, this is a story that has been told time and time again. Now, that's not the only case though. There's another tale about several years later where another visitor of the museum came across Annabelle. They decided to tap on the glass. And as they did this, they began laughing and saying how silly she was and they just didn't believe in her because of course, she's nothing but a doll. Well, on this person's way home, he reportedly lost control of his motorcycle and crashed head-on into a tree, which killed him instantly. 
Oh, and also, in this one, he had his girlfriend with him who just barely survives. Sometimes when you read about his story, the girlfriend warns him beforehand not to mess with Annabelle. You know, one of those, but it says right there, you shouldn't do that, so don't do it. I don't know why I made her ditzy. I'm sorry. I have no idea why I did that. But what I'm saying is, according to the source, sometimes the girlfriend is mentioned beforehand, but nevertheless, whenever you read about this specific tale, the girlfriend barely survives the wreck. Also, anytime you read about this one, the girlfriend claims that at the time of the accident, the couple had been laughing all about the doll. I can't tell you how many times I go somewhere and afterwards I'm like, oh, that was just so hilarious. Can you believe, I can't believe you did that. You tapped on the glass. Oh. No, like, like never actually. If anything like odd or crazy happens that I just like chuckle to myself, well, I don't make a point to be like, ha ha ha, that was hilarious, especially like on a motorcycle. How the fuck are you hearing each other? Anyways, uh, plot holes, but yeah, so they were just apparently, according to her, laughing about the doll and how it was just this raggedy Ann doll and it was nothing scary and then boom, tree and uh, he passed away and she survived. Now, over the years, the Warrens continue to recount all these tales as proof of Annabelle and the doll's horrific but demonic powers. Now, here's another big shock twist to this tale. None of these stories can be corroborated. As in, none of these tales can be proven. A doll. This was a child. They would take it for rides, they'd talk to it, mm -hmm. they'd buy clothing for it, jewelry. They treated it just as though it was that little girl who was killed, Annabelle. <laughs> now they were giving it a lot of recognition. Soon after the first seance, things would happen in their house, what we refer to as infestation. There would be knocking sounds, they'd see flashing lights in their bedroom at night shooting across the room, the bed would shake a little bit. It would get icy cold. They'd hear whispering, which we call magic whispering. Now, from time to time, these girls would change shifts. But they were getting a little scared now. So they decided to stay on the same shift all the time, mm -hmm. 4 to 12. They'd leave the doll in the bedroom. They'd come home after midnight, put the key in the door, unlock the door, and who do you think is standing there? The raggedy and doll. Standing there. Now, that doll has flimsy legs. Yeah. If you try to stand it up, you can't. But I've seen that doll stand. I've seen a lot of things happen around that doll. Well, this still didn't scare them. But one of the fiancés or one of the girls was against all of this. He said, burn the doll, throw it away, get rid of it. It's evil. Well, he falls asleep one afternoon, a Saturday. And uh, the doll is in a chair not far from him. And the girls are cleaning up the apartment. Mm -hmm. He wakes up with a start. He said, my God, what a nightmare. He said, uh, I dreamt that that doll was strangling me. He had marks on his throat. Was it psychosomatic? Well, let's see. He gets up. He looks at the doll in the chair, picks it up, and throws it right across the room. You're nothing but a rag doll. You couldn't hurt anyone. With that, Tony, seven psychic slashes appear on his body. Wow. Now, we've seen these kind of slashes. 
We've filmed them. These slashes come from nowhere. The blood came right through his shirt. The nurses witnessed this. Then, a huge chair rolled across the room. Pictures on the walls came off, started smashing and breaking. Loud pounding sounds. Now they were all frightened. They called the High Episcopal Canon in Hartford, Connecticut. He called Father Richard Nolan, an exorcist, and Father Nolan called us. You see, the name of the young priest and the motorcyclist were never divulged. You'd think, if somebody wanted to share this tale and was so gung-ho to make sure that it never happened to anybody else, they would at least have some way for them to verify. Also, neither Donna, Deirdre, Diana, Diane, or Angie, the two nurses, you know, Annabelle's very first victims, yeah, they never came forward with their story about the doll. Neither did Father Cook or Father Hagen or whichever father that Ed is stating, as he has been caught using different names. Well, these fathers have never appeared to have been mentioned in exorcisms or of Annabelle ever again. It would appear that all we have here is the possibility that the Warrens are using their word that all of this took place. Whether or not any of these tales of hauntings that center around this doll actually took place, the stories that are left behind and made word of mouth spreading around everywhere were all that is needed for Hollywood. And as we know, we have these hit movies all about Annabelle. However, these movies took a story about a doll. And I say story because what we know about Annabelle is considered to be, quote, factual. But the only sources are Ed and Lorraine. So he took what a couple has stated that nobody has backed up and added his own pizzazz. He wrote about Annabelle, a child-sized haunted porcelain doll with lifelike features. But she had a thirst for violence. He used the real-life Annabelle as a inspiration. Of course, there are several, several differences between the Warren's doll and the one you see in the movies. Of course, the obvious is that the doll itself is an Annabelle doll. Clearly, it's a child's toy, but it was exaggerated and the features that are plush in real life were now looking more human in the cinema version. The movie's version is inspired by more vintage handmade dolls. Ones that are porcelain and have lifelike features with hair and eyes that just seem to stare into your soul. Cause that's exactly what that doll does. But let's face it, if you saw a Raggedy Ann on the Hollywood big screen running around being this like paranormal entity, you'd be like, okay, I'd fucking bunt it. But a doll that looks like a child and stands about three to five feet tall, depending on like what movie or what story you're reading, yeah, you'd definitely be a lot more terrified. Also, along with Annabelle's looks, when it comes to the movie, the things that happened, these were definitely exaggerated, if not just completely made up. These were there for shock and awe value, obviously. Rather than terrorizing a pair of roommates or nurses and one boyfriend or fiance, again, it depends on what story, the movie moves from home to home with the doll. 
and the doll attacks families, possessing members of satanic cults, killing children, and possessing a nun, causing chaos and wreaking havoc on the Warren's own life. Despite the fact that the real Annabelle only has one alleged murder under her belt, Mr. Wan invented enough destruction around this entity for several successful movies. And there's probably gonna be some more. I mean, come on, like we really do love creepy shit. But I have a question. Can you really use based on a true story if the story you're basing it on can't be proven? So you were once a Bloomfield cop. Did you believe in this kind of stuff back then? I believed in, I did a lot of astrology back then. And then when I met my wife, who was daughter of Ed Lorraine, she introduced me to them. And the rest, as they say, is history because I was so intrigued by Ed's stories of the demonic and of ghosts and demons. Now, as I said, Ed and Lorraine have both passed away. And as I tell you more about this and we dive in a bit, I don't want any of this to come across as though I am being any kind of negative toward them. They are not alive to defend themselves, but I will state that a lot of their stuff has come into question. But nonetheless, their museum and their legacy is continued on by their daughter Judy and her husband Tony Spira. You see, until his death, Ed considered Tony his demonology protege, his entrusted partner who was learning the ways. And he believed that Tony could continue on taking care of the museum and all of the artifacts should Ed pass away. As we know, they both have and now Tony and Judy run the whole thing. Of course, the whole thing and its artifacts include the Annabelle doll and her protective case. Just like Ed and Lorraine, Tony warns visitors of Annabelle. When he was once asked, is the doll dangerous? He responded with, yes, it is the most dangerous object in this museum. Yes, yes, yes. But, ugh, hate to be the bearer of bad news, but the Warrens do have a very complicated relationship with the truth. Though they became practically household names for their involvement in the Amityville horror, and the inspiring of The Conjuring, their work has almost entirely been completely debunked. Just remember that next time you watch one of the movies. An investigation by the New England Skeptical Society proved that the artifacts in the Warren's Occult Museum were most definitely fraudulent. They even cited that they found doctored photos and exaggerated storytelling that was accounting for basically everything. But for those of you who may be doubting Annabelle now, Tony says that you can come on down and play a little game of Russian roulette with her. Now I don't mean this with a gun, because there may not be any bullets involved, but according to him, you'd be risking your life. Hi guys, Tony Sparrow here. If I look a little uh, hot, it's because I just got the lawn outside of uh, the Warren property. And uh, I sweat probably about a gallon of water. Uh, I feel better now, though. I was getting a little lightheaded. But I had to do it. And I tell you, um, I'm in here in the museum because of the rumors that Annabelle has escaped. Now, I'm here to tell you something. I got to tell you something. I don't know if you're going to want to hear this or not. 
But Annabelle did not escape. Annabelle's alive. Well, I shouldn't say alive. Annabelle's here uh, in her, all her infamous glory. She uh, never left the museum. Remember, I have high-tech security here. If she had left the museum, I'd instantly know if something happened or if somebody broke in. I have uh, good alarm systems here. And the police are very good to respond. They respond within a couple minutes, maybe, if that. But Annabelle's here, and she didn't go anywhere. She didn't uh, take a trip. She didn't fly first class. And uh, she didn't go out to visit her boyfriend. So, you know, there she is. So let's put the rumors to rest, guys. I was going to go Facebook Live or YouTube Live, but for some reason I couldn't get a signal out here. It wasn't as strong as it normally is. Uh, but for now, I'm going to sign off, and uh, I appreciate all the concern. Uh, I'd be concerned if Annabelle really did leave, uh, because she's nothing to play with. Okay, guys, uh, till next time. Bye-bye. The very real-life fears surrounding the real Annabelle doll only flared up even more in August of 2020 smack dab in the middle of quarantine. When reports began surfacing that Annabelle the doll had escaped from the museum, which by the way closed down at least temporarily due to some issues starting in 2019. I'm not positive if it's back open. I, I, again, I don't know. COVID's really fucked up a lot of shit, so I don't know. However, these rumors quickly spread all over social media. The reports were quickly outed as inaccurate, and Tony himself soon posted a video of himself alongside Annabelle and admitted she was there, and it was just some false stuff being spread over the internet. But maybe that's all Annabelle is. A false story spreading across the internet and across our reality, being told as true. I mean, how true can something be? that you can't find an original source for. I don't know. Again, as always, you can be the judge. Before I can say goodbye to you and end this episode, we need to dive in a bit to Ed and Lorraine. They were fascinating people, and if you're into the macabre and the paranormal, oh, you would be obsessed with them. These self-professed Catholics created the New England Society for Psychic Research in 1952 and continued to spend their whole lives investigating the paranormal phenomena. Ed Warren styled himself as a, quote, demonologist, despite never having gone to any seminary. Instead, he actually went to art school, fun little fact. Lorraine Warren claimed that she was clairvoyant. A clairvoyant is a person who claims to have a supernatural ability to perceive events in the future or beyond any normal sensory contact. Basically someone who gets visions. But there is a lot more to it and that's just kind of a little quick little layman's terms, I guess, just to sum it all up for you. Together, the couple became extremely famous for all of their work into hauntings and so much more. Not to mention all of the best-selling novels that are based on their cases and the horror franchise as well. However, the Warrens aren't only known for being these world-renowned paranormal investigators. No, 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 no. They are also known for being grifters. If you don't know what that is, 
it's basically a con artist. It is a person who engages in petty and small-scale swindling. You see, Ed and Lorraine claim that they investigated nearly 10,000 paranormal cases in their lifetimes. Now, if they investigated one case per day, that would take them about 27 and a half years. That's without taking any weekends off. As we can see from their books and, of course, The Conjuring Universe, some of these cases take days or even months to resolve. Ed Warren also had a day job as a bus driver, and the couple had a child. Any parent out there would know that this task would probably be impossible. Oh, and they also wrote books and made media appearances and operated their occult museum. So, how could they possibly have accomplished and managed, investigated, looked into, and documented 10,000 different paranormal cases throughout their lifetime? I'm not saying they didn't. I'm not. I'm not. It can be done, as we know. But was it really? Was it? I mean, was it? So, what's the catch? There was a crime, a, a murder. In the house? There's several people, a family. Accused claims he heard voices coming from within the house. Well, houses don't kill people. To a perfect house, and to a perfect family. As we know, the most famous tale for the couple is that they consulted on the Amityville haunting. The book that originally tells the story of this haunting and mentions the Warrens by name was published by J. Anson in 1977. And this book would go on to become a bestseller, also becoming a movie adaptation. The original adaptation would go on to become one of the highest grossing independent movies of all time. However, what's crazy about that, with all of its fame and everything that we know, the book and movie have all been famously debunked. You see, the Lutzes couldn't have found a demonic hoofprint in the snow as they claim they did. According to weather records, there was no snowfall at the time that they saw this hoofprint. So, most likely, they didn't find a hoofprint. The book also goes on to detail extensive damages to the home's doors and hardware, the original locks, the doorknobs, and hinges, all stating that they were damaged beyond, like, repair. It was just horrible. At least according to the book, the damage was just, it was just really bad. I mean, if you read the book, it really sounds like this house was going to fall down. However, the house itself, if you looked at it right when they said all this happened just after, it was actually untouched. There was nothing wrong with it. No damage, no sign of even a struggle. The book and film also show police being called to the house. But, Nicole writes that during the 28-day siege that drove the Lutz family from the house, they never once actually called the police. So this is one of those based-on-a-true-story, you know, stretch-of-the-truth moments. It is also worth noting that William Weber, who was Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s attorney, has publicly stated that the story was made up between Jay Anson and the Warrens and George and Kathy Lutz. 
Yes, a real murder did occur at the house. I mean, it's several did actually if we're gonna get technical. And I did do a whole episode on it if you wanna look back at the Amityville Horror Murders. As for the Lutz's claim of a haunting, it's pretty much been debunked. It seems like at least this case was just to grab some cash pretty quick and it worked. But there's still more cases, right? Let's talk about some of those. They're bound to be true, right? Oh, this thing has latched itself to your family. Uh, we never seen nothing like this. <laughs> No way. I can't lose you. There's a lady in a dirty nightgown that I see in my dreams. She's standing in front of my mom's bed. Do you want to see him? Yeah. When the music stops, you see him in the mirror standing behind you. talk about the story that really burst Ed and Lorraine onto the scenes for many of us today. Yes, I know Amityville with Ryan Reynolds is definitely yours, but some of you didn't really know who they were until The Conjuring. The Conjuring movie was a real-life haunting claimed to be experienced by the Perone family. Both Lorraine and one of the Perone children have confirmed the movie is accurate. However, the woman who currently owns the home where the Perones lived, Norma Sutcliffe, says the movie is quote, complete fiction. She even made an hour-long video about all of them. Yep, just over here like, this isn't real. I'm sorry, like, here's my proof. Conjuring the movie. Our lives have been devastated by the release of this movie. The movie industry and all involved never bothered to consider the consequences to us never told us that the movie was going to be made and that how it may affect our lives. Even when they were informed about the horrendous experience that we were facing, no one bothered to contact us. I am the current owner of the farm where the parents lived during the alleged events of the 1970s, when the Warrens also became involved with the family. Only due to the presence of the Warrens were this movie created. When I discovered the parents' name and the name of the town was used, I was infuriating. It was then that the realization how the occult followers was able to so quickly gain our personal and private information. We will never feel safe or secure again. We have forever lost our sense of peace and privacy. And as long as we live here, we will never feel that peace and for anyone else in the future. We were left on our own to cope with this assault. We are so angry and frustrated. We are experiencing anxiety and stress when we should be enjoying our home and our retirement. It is enough for us to have to deal with serious physical problems without having to face 
people stalking, harassing, and trespassing at all hours into the middle of the night, who believe they have the right to maliciously and willfully invade and violate our home and our lives, and to threaten our well-being both emotionally and psychologically and physically. We never had to post our property. Now it angers me every time I come and go from our home to have to see what looks to me like a circus with signs all around the property and ropes and chains and flags. But worse, it does not stop the trespasses. According to her, everything about the Perone family and what they experienced at the house, including the Warrens being involved, was all embellished and mostly fake. It was just a falsehood told to the media to get money, just like what is claimed about Amityville. This is my home. Get out now. No, this is not your house. Now, what's your name? My name is Bill Wilkins, and I'm 72 years old. What do you make of that voice? Sounds confused. You see now? The voice on this tape is coming from an 11-year-old girl. Now the second Conjuring movie is all about the real-life Enfield haunting. The very real family involved in that haunting did get caught faking evidence of the haunting as shown in the movie. Also, like the movie, police officers involved really did claim to see objects move on their own at the house. However, as far as the Warrens are involved, people involved in the case say unlike the movie in real life, the Warrens showed up quote, uninvited, and then left just the very next day. Yeah, so they didn't really play as big as a role as they'd like you to believe in the movies. In fact, they weren't even really wanted there. They just arrived and decided, you know what? Let's tell everybody this story. I, the Society for Psychical Research, who look into these things, um, and that's when people like Morris Gross um, were involved and they were the, quotes, professionals. As far as Morris is concerned, I understood that he had a connection with, with the case. He'd gone along there believing that it was his recently deceased daughter who was also called Janet who was trying to contact him from beyond the grave sort of thing and I'm sorry I'm so lost on me Janet are you alright? This voice channeled towards Janet's direction and we looked at her face but her mouth wasn't moving Ed no no now, am I saying they made it all up? No. But did the Warrens really play as big as a role as the movie made them out to? Also, no. Check it out. They'd held seances in this house. People not only contacted the dead, but made things appear. There is something in this house. Something no longer living and not yet passed over. 
In 1986, the Warrens investigated a funeral home turned family home that was infested, apparently, with demons. The Snedeker family complained of strange behavior from their son, who often would get violent and sometimes had sexual attacks by unseen entities. They also encountered apparitions, odd smells, attacks, violent other things, bleeding, lots of weird things happened in the house. At least, according to them. This haunting was also investigated by the Warrens and became the basis of the movie A Haunting in Connecticut in 2009. Which is actually a, actually a pretty good movie, I'm not gonna lie. In fact, I was actually so into this movie so long ago when I lived in Connecticut, all I wanted to do was find this house, but I respected the fact somebody lived there and I didn't do it. But I thought about it, I did think about it. Now, the author who worked with the Snedeker family and the Warrens in order to write a book about this whole haunting would later say that the family involved was going through some serious health problems at the time. But it wasn't just what you saw in the movie. There was alcoholism and drug addiction. And because of this, they could not keep their stories straight. The author even said, quote, I became very frustrated. It's hard writing a non-fiction book when all the people involved are telling you different stories. You don't know what's true. The Sudeker family also had a neighbor living in the upstairs apartment during their stay at this haunted home, and the neighbor said that they never experienced anything paranormal. And ever since, nobody has had any paranormal experiences since the Snedekers. I'd say well, Brookfield and Lindley Street were about on the same in, in level. West In West Hartford. And don't forget the Maurice Thuriel case. Oh, well, well no, no, Connecticut. He says Connecticut. I just wonder. There's so many. There's so many, but... You know, when, you, when you're sitting in a house and you see things rise up and smash and break and fires start right before your eyes, yeah. that, that's heavy stuff. Oh, yeah, should you guys ever get scared in there? Yeah. What, uh, well, in houses like that, Tony, I have found myself breaking down and crying. I think I cry out of frustration. You know, I don't know if I'm crying out of fear. It just gets so frustrating to you to see this much you, damage. Excuse me, really sorry for interrupting. But what would you say to the skeptics out there? And I'm sure there's some skeptics <laughs> watching this show. Maybe a husband of, of a woman who believes in ghosts and the husband doesn't. What would you say to skeptics who say, that oh, is just a bunch of baloney? What would you say? Well, try to keep an open mind. Remember that there are things that scientists today, ourselves, just don't understand. We can't explain it. But keep an open mind because you can tell your wife uh, what type of person she is. Does she imagine a lot of the things occurring? Is, is she sensitive? Uh, if she continually complains about seeing a ghost, or things happening, uh, you have to give this woman the benefit of the doubt. Mm. I mean, why, why wouldn't you? She's your wife, your lover. Why not give her the benefit like, of the doubt? Like my wife in the morning when she wakes up, she goes, I thought I was with Tom Selleck last night. <laughs> she was. She was with me. Sure she but, was, um, Tom. Sure she Look, I'm not saying all of the cases that they are known for are fake. I'm just saying they're, they, well, you know, they're probably just not real. What would you say to the skeptics, Lorraine? I would say look at the evidence. Look at the amount of evidence today 
that we didn't have years ago. Years ago, we didn't have this kind of evidence, Tony. We didn't have the ability to gain video footage of what goes on in these homes. Sure, we'd have still photographs, and they could poke every kind of a hole in the world. In, in but you the know, in your heart of hearts, it's real. We, you know, in your heart of hearts, yes. that it's real. We're just about out of time. If you ask me, I'm not sure I believe anything the Warrens have claimed. This isn't to degrade them or assault their character in any way, shape, or form. It is just simply because the sources behind their claims are very murky. Do I love the thought of a Raggedy Ann doll wreaking havoc and killing people from behind a glass case? <laughs> yeah, that sounds pretty rad. It's like Chucky's evil girlfriend. But do I genuinely believe that Annabelle is actually a danger? No. Am I gonna go test it out at the museum? Also no. I'm not gonna tempt fate, because just in case it really is something dangerous, <laughs> I don't want any part of that. But I would love to know what you guys think of the Warrens and Annabelle or any of their other cases. If you'd like, you can go ahead and do a quick Google search and you will find that a lot of their work has been debunked. It is kind of sad because a lot of it was interesting and really fun to kind of like imagine was really happening, but when you find out that so much was just falsified, it's like womp womp womp, okay. But that's sadly the kind of stuff that actually discredits a lot of things in the paranormal field. People wanting to draw attention to the paranormal by making false claims doesn't help. It only hurts it. And sadly, it seems like the Warrens, although they were trying to, I genuinely think, do good, maybe it wasn't all just to get money. Maybe they really did believe in the paranormal and wanted to show people something. Get them to really believe. But instead, it really just hurt everything. So, if you believe them, fantastic. If you don't, also fantastic. But that's what I have for you today. If you'd like to send me an email, you can do so at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. You can tell me all about the Warrens and how you feel about them. Hell, maybe you know more about one of the many 10,000 hauntings they claim to have investigated. If you do, send me your information, I'd love to know. Or maybe you just want to send me a message and say something nice. A few of you actually did that this week and it made my days. So if you have done that, thank you. If you also want to send me a message and say, hey Harmony, your podcast sucks, you can do that too. Freedom of speech doesn't bother me. So, anywho's, it's time for me to say goodbye. I love you guys, I hope you have an amazing rest of your week, and I can't wait to talk to you on the next episode. Y'all, please stay safe out there. The last thing I ever want to do is tell a story about one of you. But until next time, keep wondering what the actual F is going on with our world. Love you! Bye!